or dip a below E. <laughs> What's great is, is Kramer, I think changed that salesperson forever. He unlocked that salesperson's potential of humanity in that episode. It was, it was beautiful. Like he became a new person. Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. How was, how was your flight home on, what was it, uh, Friday you flew home? Oh my gosh, that flight was so long. <clears throat> and it wasn't like it was long, it just, I mean, I watched I watched the entire movie Gangs of New York. Oh. And then the entire movie Zombieland. Ouch, and then, that is a long flight. And then um, finished up 127 hours, which I started on the flight to Boston. <laughs> and And then still had time. Wow. I know that was, a, yeah. How long of a flight is it normally? I mean, it's, it's a five hour flight. It's a five hour flight. Okay. Yeah. But it's like, usually I fall asleep for a little bit here on flights and I didn't mm-hmm. want to, because I wanted to be able to sleep when I got home mm-hmm. and like kind of counteract the jet lag for, you know, but that was, that was crazy. Yeah, I want to say coming home from London back in August, it's like an eight-hour flight, and every pun intended that it, it flew by. Yeah. I mean, I was if if ah! uh, bad jokes today, bad jokes all around. Dad jokes, uh, actually, dad jokes. Uh, but no, if it was such a fast flight, and it just took forever to get through customs, I'm like, damn it, it's going to take me longer to get through customs than it did to actually fly home. Like, I think I was in customs for like an hour and a half. That sucks. Yeah. The only time I've, well, I don't know, I've gone through customs a couple of times, but I remember um, flying into Cancun um, and like just this like two hour line of mm-hmm. humans like being flowed through in the most like obscene looking area you can imagine in the Cancun International Airport. Mm-hmm. That was ridiculous. Yeah. And I think I answered like one of the questions wrong, like through the automated kiosk. So I bought my, my son, like a little, uh, a, a little thing to bring home for him. And, uh, you know, I get there and they ask the one question, do you have commercial goods? Well, I answer yes. And then realize they're asking like, did, did I bring promotional stuff to give out, you know, either like to give out over there or give out coming home or whatever. So of course they put me through the really long line instead of the automated line. Like, Oh yeah, you're good to go. Just keep going kind of thing. So that was also part of the problem. Seems like a broken system. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Government, man. This could go down a really dangerous dangerous path. road, yeah. Yeah, and you know that it's all recorded. So. <laughs> <clears throat> all right, shall we get on to the topic at, at hand? That's probably wise. <laughs> um 
So today I wanted to talk about something, Brian, you and I had kind of touched on a couple times based on some stuff we've worked on together. And right now I'm calling this episode data hoarders. You know, we've all encountered those clients that are so focused on data collection instrumentation and then the data that they want to collect after that, that they actually, actually lose sight of, of using it. Um, I mean, we, we've all encountered this. So like, how do you, how do you approach an engagement like this? You know, how do you get them to refocus and show them that you don't need to track absolutely, absolutely everything to get valuable insights? Well, I mean, maybe do we, do we frame up this discussion a little bit more and, and really define what a data hoarder is versus what, what they aren't? Yes. We could yeah. do that. I, I think I think it would also be helpful to talk about um, maybe the reasoning <clears throat> why, right? Because yeah. I think we can we can definitely focus on because we've all we've all worked with um, people that are are like that. Um, but I think it would be really really valuable to even go a step back further to say, well, why are they like that, and address some of those issues. Um, because I, 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 w I want to say that I, I've identified some, some clear trends where people do this and it's, it's about something different than hoarding the data. There's something deeper there. So I don't care where we start. Yeah. And, and, you know, the deeper issue, like, do we, do we have, do we have a TV show over it, you know, and it's on a major <laughs> network on cable <laughs> TV and, um, <clears throat> but no, no, seriously though, I think. I think you're right, Jason. It does it does spawn from something deeper um, within their role, but but I also think that there are people that are under this type of they're this character, but they don't realize they're a character. And and I think it would help uh, for anybody that's listening to know like what do, what do we mean by a data hoarder um, versus just a, a good analytics implementer. Um, and, and for me, you know, what, what I would define this as, and, and I'd love to hear what you guys define it as, as well is, is someone that is, is more focused on capturing data than they are at analyzing or using the data. And it's, it's a pretty broad, you know, definition and spectrum there. Um, but it's, it's really the, the point is, is that they, they're more concerned about getting data in than they are of getting data out to the consumers and the users of the data. Yeah. Um, and, and they refuse to um, eliminate data that's no longer being used and, and has really no life in the future. They want to just continually build and they, you know, it, it maybe they're uh, data hoarding and like the constant builder, you know, they're, you know, similar, similar situation. And then, you know, one other thing I'd, I'll say, and then I'd love to get your guys' feedback on is, is I did some searching around data hoarding um, earlier today. And there's actually, there's actually a subreddit for data hoarders. You got to um, stay off Reddit, man. You know, so. Dude, send me the link. So, so it's kind of funny, <laughs> like there's a whole data hoarder subreddit uh, that exists. And we're, I don't know if it's the same thing, because we're talking about analytics and, and web data, but I did think it was funny that there was uh there was a whole subreddit for data hoarding. And and just as a side note, Bryant has a serious problem with with Reddit. And he <laughs> and he goes into these deep, deep holes. And I'll get text messages at 
all hours of the day with some weird something that he's uncovered on Reddit. And I'm like, dude, you're freaking me out, man. Yeah. All right. This, com- uh, this coming from a guy that watches, you know, four hours of somebody unplugging a storm drain in some municipal post, area in the other part of the country, you know, so. Post 10 on YouTube, man. Unclogging drains across <laughs> Connecticut and Boston. This guy is a hero, man. <laughs> Jim's like, what the hell are you guys talking about? I know, I know what you're talking about there, but I'm now, I'm, Brian just sent me the link. So in the other window here, I'm, I'm looking through some of these topics. Okay. While you're looking hoarding. through that, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I would love to get everybody's perspective on this because we've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of companies um, and lots of different people and companies across multiple verticals. So I'm sure we all have slightly different perspectives, but the one, and when I saw the summary of today's episode, the one that I attached to was the implementer um, that has convinced themselves and their organization that they know more than they know and are afraid to admit it. And, and I, mm, thought this was, I thought this was a fluke when I came across it, but I've seen it at least, I don't know, eight or nine times. So it's, it's not a fluke. This is definitely happening. And what I mean by this is that uh, you have a certain subset of people in the analytics space that have raised their hand and said, you know, not only do I know how to implement data collection, you know, frameworks, I also know how to build out reporting. I'm also a really amazing analyst. You should see me with the wonders I can do with building out optimization programs. But the reality is they don't know those things. And they fed a line to their current employer to get hired because let's be honest, lots of companies don't know how to hire for these roles. And so they get uh, or for any role for any role for that matter, especially in analytics or any kind of technical role. They kind of get a little starstruck when they hear these key words and phrases like, ah, this person must know what they're talking about. And what ends up happening is in order to um, not be exposed, they stay in a perpetual cycle of implementation. Yeah. Yeah. And what's interesting, if you go back and look at these people's uh, resumes, you can see that it aligns with when they go to the next job. Because there's only so long a company is going to be patient going through perpetual implementation. At some point in time, someone's going to get upset enough to say, we have to use this data. We have to activate this data. And at that time, this person moves on to their next company and repeats Mm -hmm. the process. Ironically, that that timeline usually aligns to like a license renewal contract. And the company's like, hey, what's the value we're getting out of this, this solution that's costing us X million of dollars or you know, X hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that person's like, all right, well, look, time to, you know, go on to the next role where I can rip apart and replace and don't need to show the value. And and I've I've seen that time and time again as well in my my career and working with clients. Yeah. And I think there's also an oh, sorry guys. Oh, sorry, go. No, no, I was gonna say I'm I'm interested in in kind of what you if you've seen that or if you've seen other things that would would kind of support that narrative. Um, there's that one, but then there's one that's related to it, but is, is, is still a bit distinct. It's just a a level of, of short-sightedness and the short-sightedness typically comes from management where they, they want to see progress. And when with instrumentation, it's easy to show progress, 
because a lot of times management doesn't necessarily know what instrumenting item A over item B means. Whereas when you get into the details, item A delivers a tremendous amount of value, item B, not so much. Uh, so it's easy to say we wired up these two items and they're both equally valuable. So yes, I think it is, you know, related to to the person who oversells themselves. But then to that point too, there's just the short-sightedness of I need to show progress. So instead of either exposing, I can't use the data or maybe even being scared to show what the data tells, I'm just going to keep wiring stuff up to show that there's progress in capturing data. I mean, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's definitely, that's definitely the case. Um, and I think that also helps support my observations as well, right? That my comfort level is in, is in data collection and, 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 and let me throw it out there. I think that's, that's perfectly okay. I, you know, I think having someone that is a architect is extremely critical. Um, and I, I, I think that they need to get over that self-belief that unless I could do all these other things, I'm not valuable uh, because I think it's holding them back. It's holding the companies back there. They're working with it's, it's more than okay to say my role in this organization is a, as a MarTech architect, help, help me partner with people within the organization that are then going to activate that data, whether they're building dashboards, whether they're running optimization programs, whether they're running email marketing campaigns, I can be their partner. But to try to be the everything when you're not and try to convince yourself of that fact keeps companies in this 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 process. Um, and it's interesting in that I've seen two parallel paths in this pay, in this space. One, kind of what I think you're referencing, Jim, where it's just a continual iteration. We need to collect more stuff. It's not done. We need to collect more. We need to reset things up. But there's also a parallel track in which it's um, overcomplicate things from the beginning. I don't know if you've you've ran across. Yes, the people I didn't think are, of that one. Yes, but, but no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely that um, that actor in this in this drama that oh, likes to overcomplicate things for overcomplicating them sake. And I think again, I think it's overcompensating for you know, lack of comfort in the other areas of activation of the data. And again, I think it's more important for that architect to admit that I don't have to know all those things to still be, be valuable. And, you know, when these, when these architects get in there and overcomplicate things, um, man, they make a mess of it and they can really drag out implementations for years. And not only do they end up with something that's not usable, they, they end up with something that frankly is, is not maintainable. As soon as they leave, nine times out of 10, we've seen those things torn down to the ground and rebuild. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. And, and you guys are really, you're really focusing on kind of the, the person that is your, the role that is the implementer or the architect that then, you know, kind of directs the implementers. But, but to me, this, uh, the, the underlying problem or the, the other piece of it is where where are these requirements coming from? And I think there's also the marketer um, or the user or the analyst that gets the paralysis in, in completing a task by stating, I don't have enough data to get to an answer um, for, for our, you know, for our stakeholders or whatever it might be. And in, uh, you know, I've had this recently, but also very, 
very much, you know, throughout my career in which, you know, I have to coach people through and say, you know, it, in the end there, there will be, there will be times in which you really don't have all of the data to do the analysis and have a perfect answer to a, a business question. And very, but, but that doesn't mean you can't show value. You can't, there's ways that you can use our tools that we have in this space to be able to come up with some sort of analysis that, that gives you maybe halfway there or 80% there. And then you can tease out the rest of it with some future implementation. I, yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because yeah, I mean, for me, the natural path to go down was um, these, the, the kind of technical path where implementers want to stay in implementation because it's where they, they feel comfortable. But I think you, you bring up a great point and one that we see a lot, especially in the digital analytics space, is that oftentimes this pressure is not coming from the implementer, it's coming from the business owner, it's coming from the analyst. And um, I can't remember the, the line you just said, you said sometimes, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, in my in the back of my head, I think it's all the times. You, your, your data is never perfect. Your data is never <laughs> That's complete. True, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, coming from a background of non-traditional data analytics. Um, so I, I did, I guess, MarTech um, stuff back in the early 2000s, but I was doing a lot of um, PLSQL um, directly against really big databases that had lots and lots of dirty data. And I spent 60 to 70 percent of my time cleaning and organizing the data just to get it to a point that I could analyze it. And I think um, one of the one of the negatives of the SaaS um, environment that we work in with Adobe, with Google Analytics, with all of these other players is they've done such a tremendously good job at doing all that pre-processing and prep of the data that we've not taught the analysts that as an analyst, most of your job is in cleaning and preparing data. And so now what happens in, in your Adobe data or your Google data, if it's not 99.99% perfect, a lot of analysts throw their hands up and say, I, I can't analyze this data. I can't work with it. It's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, it's unfortunate. And if the interface is such that, you know, you can do a lot there, but it, if it doesn't spoon feed something out to you, oftentimes like, you know, people are unwilling to go to that next step and understand how to actually create or tease that that insight out um, yeah. with imperfect data, and and I'm glad yeah. you brought that up actually around around there never being a time that there is a complete data set. Um, kind of a a mis <laughs> miscue on my part because yeah, there there has not been a single time I have had all data to do analysis, and and that is a big part of the job. And I think it's it's part of the art of being an analyst, um, part of the art of that science that that is being lost. And, um, because again, the sales pitch is our tool is so easy to use and look at these cool graphs and everything there. But in the, at the end of the day, it's, it's like handing over, you know, a blank canvas and some really fancy oil paints, um, you know, to a kindergartner and expecting there to be a, a Van Gogh style painting out of it at the end. It, it just, I mean, it, it, there's, there's steps in between, right? And even even simpler than that, I think I bought a Bob Ross painting kit once, and I'm like, <laughs> how, how come I'm not painting an amazing winter scene with you know a cute yeah. little cabin? Uh, but you're you're right. I mean, that's you know that's what we've kind of sold the market is you throw this tag on your site, and then everything else is easy. It's analysis is really really hard. 
um, you know, it's hard and it's okay to, to admit that. Um, and so, you know, I think people that are listening that their organizations may be stuck in this cycle, I think that's really the place to start is to question, why are we here? Why, why are we facing this challenge? And I think one of the difficult things about doing that is a lot of these organizations are one, one person shops. So that means I have to question myself. You know, I have to be realistic and say, am I the one holding us back? You know, am I super, super comfortable doing implementation? So, you know, I'm going to get us implemented. And then when we're done, I'm going to want to move to a new tag manager because that's going to give me something else to do. And then new, move to a new paradigm because that's going to give us something else to do. My part of the problem. Um, but I, I think that's really where the conversation needs to start is, you know, what is our challenge? You know, do we do we have the thing staffed correctly? Are we stuck here because people's egos are in play? Are we stuck here because, you know, our analysts have misset expectations that they need perfect data? And then once you recognize that, then I think you can have some really, really valuable conversations about how do we get to a point where we're actually driving value out of out of these investments? Yeah, and I'd, I'd even go further back than that too at, at the purchase decision. When when somebody is deciding I need web analytics data or or they've heard I need it, educating yourself on that process of why why do you need it and what what is it that you're going to going to do with that data or or what data do you want to have to be able to do things that you can't do today. And I'm not saying that there isn't a need there. There's clearly a need for the analytics data, but but really challenging the business stakeholder um, or executive that has the budget that's going to be paying that money to educate more on what it is that it takes to implement and what it takes to then get the value out of the data. Jim and I recently have, have kind of been working on um, a situation in which there there's a lot of requests continually being added in. And, and ultimately, we're, we're describing the need there and, and putting a business value and a business case out to implement some new pieces. But we're also educating stakeholders on the real actual cost to continually adding data in, be it our time as consultants and, and you know, as people that are working with them to the, the time that their developers spend to deploying that code to the licensing fees and the increase in data that's being collected and stored. Um, and and everything else that's tied that there, there's a real cost associated with continually deploying data. And if it doesn't come back to one of those original requests or a, a business objective that a stakeholder is established, then that that should be the clear indicator of whether or not you continue to implement. Um, so um, I one of the things that I'm doing, and and Jason, you and I talked a little bit about this this morning with some of some of the things that I'm trying to to improve our customers' experience. One of the things that I'm going to be helping introduce to 33 Sticks into the market is really a, a better way to, to define what those business objectives are and tie them back to specific metrics. And, and going through that exercise and going through that process before you ever even touch code, before you ever even touch a solution, in, in clearly articulating that this particular business problem has a very specific need and a very specific audience that we're going to segment for. And these are the specific metrics that we're gonna to use to measure that. I've seen it starting to come up in some marketing organizations, but generally speaking, the market is way behind in doing this type of strategic thinking 
before they get into the tech because the tech can just answer all questions. We if if we get all of the data, we can answer every question is kind of the thinking out there. And if if you put that plan in place first, I think you're going to have a much better approach. And um, and we've been doing this actually with one of our other clients. Um, we onboarded earlier this year. I, I took that approach and, and the implementation went faster and the reporting went faster and everybody got approval and buy-in and knew this is this is the plan that we're going to execute against with. And then ultimately the results then can reflect that. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I do think that's a, a really, really valuable conversation. And I'm wondering, um, you know, how how you position you know if we're if we're asked by companies that are struggling with this what what would be our recommendations i so i'm looking at uh my my espresso machine here in the background and i think it it makes a really good talking point for 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 this um in that a lot of companies when they're buying martech solutions they go out on the market and say oh i need this super fancy espresso machine um, but they don't even know how to run their Keurig very well. And, and to me, it's a, it's a process of doing and testing and iterating, um, rather than just going out and buying something because it seems like the right thing to, to do. So I could have gone out and bought like a $10,000. It would be really easy to spend 10, $15,000 on an espresso machine. Um, I wouldn't know what the hell to do with it. Um, and so for me, it's like, okay, what's a what's a good entry level for someone at my level of experience that's going to allow me to grow and mature, um, and allow me to learn. And then as I do that, I can learn, okay, what what limitations does this have that is going to inform the next thing that I, I potentially go to? And I think that lots of companies make that mistake where they're completely immature. They don't even know how to pull a basic espresso shot, and then they go out and buy a fifteen thousand dollar professional espresso machine when they would be much better off going through an informed path saying, okay, what are our challenges today and what do we want to do? Let's buy something that's going to stretch us because, you know, with my espresso machine, I, I'm what, six months in and I'm still learning how to use it and there's a lot of room for me to grow there. So let's buy something that's going to stretch, but let's be realistic and let's use that as an opportunity to get immediate value and to educate ourselves as we mature so that when we make the next decision, we're going to have all of that practical knowledge to say, okay, we now know what we want, what we don't want, what our challenges are. Um, but, but again, I think all too often it's, it's, you know, let's go out and buy stuff. And, and oftentimes we, we overbuy for the situation simply because we're not experienced enough to know what we're buying for. Absolutely. Yeah. What do you think about that, Jim? It would help if I unmuted myself. Um, no, no, I, I think, well, I, yes, you know, people go out and overbuy. And then I've sent, mentioned this a couple times. Like, I, I think Martech sales completely oversimplify too. So you have yeah. both of those situations where you have someone going out and overbuying. And sometimes it's just because, you know, um, a competitor or not even maybe a competitor, but like a colleague in this industry is using this tool and we want to be like them. So we need to go buy this tool. And then you have MarTech sales that come in and say, Oh, it's so simple. And here, let me, let me show you how you can pull, you know, the, the, this wonderful report, but they didn't say like, you know, it, it's a very well staged demo that, you know, it, the, the, the person doing it is, is very experienced with the UI and is able to pull it together. So I, I think you have 
both of those those situations happening. So then at that point, you then start to run into the situation of we need all of this information to actually get started. Yeah. So let's go back to your original question, Jim, mm-hmm. um, where you 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 kind of cued this up. It's like, how do you work in an engagement like this? Now, this could be from uh, a consulting perspective that we're coming from, but it very well could be coming from within an organization, either as I'm a, a director of analytics, maybe I'm a VP of marketing, um, and and you're in these situations where your MarTech um, progress has stalled because you're in this implementation paralysis phase. Um, how do we get out of it? How, how do you approach a situation like that? And again, I think we can take it from both of those perspectives, either as uh, an outside consultant coming in. And I think, you know, that makes it a little bit easier and that we can go in and just say, you know, here's why you guys are, are, are screwing things up. And on that, on that um, perspective, like, who do we talk to? Is it how high in the organization do we start? How do we present it? And then I think we could take the flip side of it. What if I am an analytics manager? Where do I start? You know, how do I understand where the problem is? Is it me? Is it my team? Is it something else? Um, let, let's go back and kind of focus on that question of how we fix the, the condition. So I think both cases go back to questioning the why. What is it? Who, who are you trying to answer a question for in which that data is needed? And is that data completely needed or is it, is it needed in a way that requires implementation or is there enough data that you can provide to, to get to that answer? And, and that exists both from a consulting perspective, but also from the, you know, a web analytics manager perspective. Um, is is go back to that business requirement. Everything should come back to what is the business value and the business justification for getting the data or doing the analysis to provide the answer. And if there isn't a tie there um, or it's marginal amounts of improvement, then you need to question whether or not there's higher value items that you should prioritize because there's there is no lack of of ways to tweak existing implementations to make them more accurate or ensure that your uh, your most valuable uh, metrics are tracking appropriately and auditing that. I think there's more value in doing that than adding in um, you know, custom events 250 through 270 um, to make sure that you have this one-off marketing campaign item you know, taken care of um, out there. Like make sure your top 10 metrics are, are captured properly and that those bugs are are squashed out there that exist before you go out there and you try and implement something else. So let's, let's do a hypothetical. Let's say Brian, you are hired by a company as director of analytics. Um, you get in there and you discover that this company has been in endless implementation cycles for the last three years. Um, the business really is, um, not happy with the decisions to purchase analytics because they're not seeing value you discover that several organizations are running their own kind of analytics because they're not getting the data they need from the the, the proper analytics channels. What does your first 90 days look like um, at addressing that, that core issue of why have we been stuck in implementation for three years and what can we do to start making some concrete steps to move out of it? And I think you kind of maybe touched on those things, but you know, getting even to more specifics, like what what would be your top three initiatives over the first 90 days to start to correct that problem? 
So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I'll try and, I'll try and remember all of that. I didn't take any notes on that question, but it was a loaded question there. I will. Let's, let's go through I it. So I, first, I think first I thing my is, next interview question. That's going to be a good interview. Question. That's a great interview question. Um, let's see if I can get the job now. So the first thing that I would do is identify who is responsible for the tool. They're, they're likely the ones that are asking that question as to why aren't we getting any value out of it? Back to one of the earlier points I was making, maybe renewal is up, you know, in the next six months and they need to determine whether or not they're going to, they're going to have the financial um, outlay for this, this investment moving forward. Or if they're just going to say, you know what, throw my hands in the air. We tried this for three years. It's not going to work. Let all of these different departments fend for themselves. So who is that person? I would hope, you know, I'm, I'm going to apply this lens to, Let's, you know, like a Fortune 1000 company, like one of an, our, our enterprise type clients out there. Um, and let's, I would hope that that person is either, you know, senior director, VP, um, or CMO level in marketing or similar levels within technology. Depending on the company, um, the money is going to come from one of those two departments. So I'd go as high up there as I could. Um, in determining who made that that purchasing decision and what ultimately they're responsible for. Are they responsible for getting the value out of it or getting the implementation in place? Um, figure out what their needs are and then find their counterpart because there's always the two parts. There's the technology piece and the marketing piece. Um, so I get their their requirements and that might take me, you know, at a large company, it might take me three to six weeks just to get on their calendar to have that discussion. So I get that in place as soon as possible to get those, those requirements. The second is I'm going to start making some assumptions about the company and, and what needs to be done and start talking to these rogue groups about why they decided to go rogue. Why, why, why is, um, you know, business unit a doing, you know, something in Google analytics when we have an Adobe analytics instance and business group B is doing things in, in Adobe analytics, but it's different than business group C in Adobe analytics. Like what, what was the reasoning that led to that? Um, I'm probably going to uncover that there's some personnel challenges, maybe that, you know, a developer was refusing to do something a certain way or, you know, a particular individual was hired in for the role, but totally unqualified and couldn't, you know, couldn't make heads or tails of all of it. And it just kind of lost control of the project management aspect of it. Um, but really just do as much uncovering as I possibly can. Ultimately, that's going to shape some sort of a vision for me as to why we're in the state we are that I can then inform those stakeholders back to why we're here. The next step is to then define where are we going? How do we fix it? Um, which, you know, I can continue down this path, but I hope you know, and, and I can give you more of how I would approach that. But um, the direct question you asked was helping them understand, you know, why are we here? And, and that's the approach I'd go through. Yeah, no, that's that's good. And I think it's the opposite approach of, of what we've seen from from some people that are in this position. And, it, you know, you brought up this this sense of renewal timing it'd be interesting to have a future podcast episode where we got someone from a vendor to come on and talk about the challenges of this because i think it is a very real challenge for for martech vendors because you know sales does such an amazing job of queuing up the potential and and i don't think sales is out there blatantly lying to companies about what can be done I, you know they do a really good job of 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 telling that narrative what could be done if they do it everything everything right Unfortunately, most companies 
don't end up doing that. And then when it comes time for a renewal, the blame gets put back on the vendor, right? Brian, you and I have seen this firsthand where it's like, oh, well, this vendor sucks. Like their platform sucks. And we get in there, we're like, no, you suck. You know, <laughs> this, 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 isn't, this isn't the software, it's, it's you. You, you yeah. know, but unfortunately the blame gets put on the, on the vendor. And all too often we see companies rather than taking a step back and kind of going through that holistic view that you laid out for your 90 day plan, what their plan is, well, we're just going to rip out that vendor and put in a new vendor and it's going to fix the problem. No, you suck. And so vendor B is going to suck too when you roll it out. Yep. Yeah. And in this, this goes into another potential um, topic of discussion for podcast or or blog posting or other things, but but really the what is what is the proper ratio? Not not that there is a always a proper you know percentage um, of allocation, but but really the relationship between technology and people and strategy in order to make something like digital analytics work at a company and. And I think all too often people look to spend or they allocate every dollar they they were given from finance to the technology and severely undercut the personnel and the resources that it's going to take to stand up the tool and then get value out of it. I mean, we've got clients that that are on Google Analytics that would run circles around clients that are on Adobe Analytics because they've got the people in place that know exactly how to get exactly what they need out of that tool to do what they need to do to make their business successful. And, and um, it just, it, it happened to us earlier this year, Jason, um, in which, in which we saw in an instance where the concern was how much money was spent on a tool, but they were unwilling or unable to allocate the amount of, of money to hire and train or, or get the resources in place to actually use that tool appropriately. Yeah, no, it's a good call. And I think part of it is the marketplace needs to be more educated on what, to your point, what that proper mix looks like. Um, and maybe we should be raising our hand to create some content or some information around that. Cause I think we're in a really ideal place to have seen places where it works and where it hasn't um, and start to put out some content that may help organizations properly um, development develop that. I think, I think part of the problem I think is on the sales teams for, for some of these MarTech um, companies, because they do make it sound super easy, right? Yeah. Like our solution is so well designed that, you know, one person can run all of this and they, they kind of set the the customer up for failure because it's, it's not true. Um, as great as these products have become over the last 10 to 15 years, it's still in every company that we work with, it still comes down to people being the factor that determines the overall success of these programs. Interesting, huh? So I would maybe a recommendation out there for, for people that are on what we would call in the consulting industry, the client side. If you are, if you are working for the company that needs to get the value out of it, I would always recommend you get proof of concept before you sign where possible. Have, have the sales engineers for a tool help actually deploy it in your instance, in your environment, um, so that you can see in the real world how something might work. Um, I know that that's not always possible for for different clients of different sizes, um, but when I worked at Adobe, those clients that were able to get that um, and actually have the sales teams allocate services 
and people in place, they always were able to get off the ground much quicker and start to get value faster out of the tools because they're 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 saying until till I see that it's possible to do what you salesperson say it's possible of doing, um, we're not going to sign. So that's that's always a recommendation. And if you're on the vendor side, always make sure that you're you're connecting those dots and providing that um, that proof of concept as part of your sales pitch. Um, I think all too often, you know, we we have shiny decks and we've got really cool animations and we've got um, sterile environments in which we put our demo data out there to make it work really properly. And I think that's really good to show capabilities. Um, but, but if you're unable to replicate that in the real world, it's just like being back in school and you're reading out of a book about, you know, how something's supposed to happen in a, in a, manufacturing facility but in the reality in, in the day-to-day of of that manufacturing facility if you go and visit one it's not at all like what's shown in the book um and it's, a, it's so similar i i think you're throwing a direct challenge out there to sales engineers to be better and i and i completely agree that the that the can't let me you know walk you through this demo where we overlay something on your site to make it feel like it's yours isn't good enough anymore do you remember when um Kramer was helping Jerry buy a new Saab. <laughs> yeah. You remember that episode? And he takes it for a test drive and, and the dealership wants him to go on the predefined route where they go out onto the freeway, they exit and they go back to the dealership. <laughs> and Kramer keeps going. He's like, well, yeah, but I don't drive there. Like I drive here and I have yeah. to pick up yep. groceries here. You know, um, that's, that's the reality. And I haven't been in the position to buy lots of cars, but I've noticed the difference in that some dealerships it's, there's this prescribed one mile loop that we're going to go on and other dealers were like, they're, they'll say, take it for the weekend because you know, you, you have to see if it fits in your garage and if it's going to work to go get groceries. And yeah. um, that's a much different, better experience because that's giving me the, well, this is the reality of, of my day to day to day. And I may probably getting a little off track, but I think it's such a, a great call out and something, especially we're spending so much money on these MarTech tools that you should say, yeah, but this isn't the route I drive. I don't drive around the block. I, you know, I drive down here to pick up groceries in Manhattan. So that's where I'm going to take the car. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we're talking about in some cases the outlay of of five to ten million dollars for software with a known ramp up of three to five years, and you know that's a sizable amount of money that I've seen on contracts in which there is an awful lot of trust in some PowerPoint slides and the words of a salesperson um, out there to be able to make that work. So just, you know, if you're in a position to demand or, or uh, not demands, maybe too, uh, too aggressive of a term here, but if you're in a position to require that before you're able to sign, then leverage that um, now not working for a vendor. I can, I can <laughs> kind of state that more, uh, more openly um, now that I'm independent from any one specific vendor. So, and you work, and you work for a company that values uh, honesty and transparency. Indeed, I do. This has been a good. Uh, this has been a good conversation. Um, I sent you the uh, Kramer test drive uh, clip. I'll have to link that up in the show notes. That's a good one. Nice. That is a good one. Uh, um, and ultimately, I'll- just for those that haven't seen it. You know, Elaine and Putty's relationship comes into play around the pricing for said Saab as well, which is a yes. great, great little piece. Yeah. And I think there's also an Arby's reference in there as well. 
Is that it's, it's been ages, but isn't that also the one where he tries to see how far he can get? Yeah, you know, on, yeah. On, you know yeah. when it gets to hits E. Yeah, we're dipping below E. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the needle broke off. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, what's great is is Kramer, I think, changed that salesperson forever. He unlocked that salesperson's potential of humanity in that episode. It was it was beautiful, like, he became a new person. Is that the same episode where George um, tests the um, Twix cookie bar? I think it might be, actually. It's the only one with the cookie crunch. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, it, it might be. Conference room and he does like a blind taste test. Man, I'm going to have to go back and watch that one. That one is such an awesome episode. <laughs> Full of goodness. Yeah. Full of goodness. Man, it's been a fun conversation. It has been. And just like my flight home from London, this one flew by. <laughs> I looked down at one point and I saw we were, we're already, uh, you know, we were already 20 minutes in. So no, this was, I'm going to get, I'm going to I'm gonna see if the company will buy me a, a hello kitty drum set and I'm going to put it on my desk so that I can do the every time Jim comes up with a did ever since Jim became a dad, his like, Oh yeah. You know, it's dad jokes, the walking around in the yep. with the white socks and the jorts. He's you know, he's bad. It's, it's funny because, you know, <laughs> you know, Jason, you've got the oldest kids. Um, I've got kind of the middle, you know, I, my kids are, you know, 10, nine and five. And then, and then Jim just joined us, but he's like surpassed us no, so he, quickly with the dad jokes. It's, it's, it's amazing. Incredible. It's, it's really, uh, been, uh, it's been, it's, it's been an honor to watch, to watch this play out. It really <laughs> That's really funny. It's the the lack of sleep that I am now, you know, <laughs> I am now experiencing. And I'm going to hold Jim to his uh, promise because he said that he was going to do yard work with the full dad outfit on, and he was going to take. <laughs> I'm still I'm still waiting for that to happen. Yeah. Okay, uh, I will. Uh, I'll take a picture of it. <laughs> and 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 for our listeners that started listening and then fell asleep and are waking back up and are like, "What the hell happened to this episode?" <laughs> the tracks here. <laughs> but that's why we title it the way we do. And this is what makes it so enjoyable. Exactly. We could be super dry, or we could be talking about Seinfeld and dad jokes and socks with sandals. Yep. This seems better. <laughs> cool now this was a lot of fun so i guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up for now and uh i'll catch you both later all right we'll see you thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 tangents if you enjoyed what you heard please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us if you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.